Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the fifth week of our final series of the year that we are calling The Greatest Promise. Uh, As David mentioned just a moment ago, we've spent a lot of this year talking about the promises of God, and it felt only appropriate to conclude the year in like fashion, talking about the greatest promise we've ever been given, of course, that being the promise of a Messiah, a Savior that came in the form of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, which we will celebrate next weekend. But we have been looking at this greatest promise in a rather unconventional method. Uh, Rather than considering the details surrounding the birth of Christ in the New Testament, which is customary this time of year, we have instead decided to look at the Old Testament, specifically the lives of some individuals who prophetically foreshadowed the coming of Christ. And the reason we're looking at the Old Testament instead of the New is because Jesus tells us to do just that in our key verse for this series. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures actually point to me. Uh, I've reminded us of this every week, and I will do so once again. When Jesus made that statement, remember, he was not talking about the New Testament because the New Testament had not yet been written. None of the authors had, had penned anything to paper. In fact, some of them weren't even saved yet. And so when Jesus makes this statement about the scriptures pointing to him, he is referring to the front half of your Bible, the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. And yet he says, though I had not yet been born, if you search through those scriptures, you cannot help but see that I am. I am on every single page. And, and each week, uh, we've been giving an analogy to display that. He is the gold if we are willing to mine the Old Testament. He is uh, the road to London, as Spurgeon said, in the center of the Old Testament map. Uh, last week, I said, he is the Waldo on the landscape of the children's book pages in the Old Testament. Today, I offer yet another analogy for your enjoyment. He is the pan behind the wrinkles of the late, great Robin Williams in the Disney classic, Hook. Does anybody remember this scene? Uh, Peter's kids have been kidnapped, and he now goes to Neverland to find them. And when he shows up, he wants to lead the charge with the lost boys to take on Hook, but they don't trust him because he doesn't look anything like the original Peter Pan. He's a little too old for that. And after a little bit of a scuffle in the sand, one of the lost boys comes up to Peter, and he starts pulling back the wrinkles on his face until he's got a smile. And he says, oh, there you are, Peter. And in the same way, if you peel back the wrinkles of the Old Testament, you will find Jesus on every single page. I'm here to serve at the end of the day. So every week we have been looking at some of these Old Testament characters and we've been finding Jesus. Uh, We saw that in the story of Adam and Eve, he was the lamb in the garden. In the story of Abraham and Isaac, he was the ram on the mountain. In the story of Moses, he was the lamb that gave its life and blood was painted on the doorposts of the uh, Hebrew homes in Goshen. Uh, Last week we looked at, in the story of David, he was the good shepherd in Psalm 23 that directs our steps and protects us from the enemy. And today we look at the final of our Old Testament characters before we get to Christ next week. And this one is a bit more mysterious than the others. In fact, I've had a number of people ask me who we were going to be talking about this week because they've been able to deduce from this graphic who the first four were. They're like, okay, the Adam and Eve, yeah, okay, Abraham, okay, get it, Moses, yeah. Who's this dude with the glowing head laying his hand on another guy 
who's kneeling down? Well, today you find out because that is none other than a king and a priest briefly mentioned in the Old Testament by the name of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek gets literally three whole verses. That's it in the entire Old Testament. But within those three verses, there are heaps of prophetic symbolism that point to Christ. And I'm excited to dive into this guy's life a little bit today. So uh, if you're taking notes, let me give you a title. Uh, I'm keeping the theme alive, people, all right? So there's a lamb in the garden. <laughs> there's a ram on the mountain. Last week, I'm gonna skip the third week because Jazzy didn't follow it. Last week, eyes <laughs> on the prize. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for giving my kid a chance to teach, though. I appreciate that. Uh, last week, uh, there is a shepherd on the throne. Today, we're talking about the fact that there is a priest in the valley. There's a priest in the valley. Uh, let's pray and invite Jesus to speak to us. Holy Spirit, thank you for this gathering this morning and the opportunity to come to your word and once again look for Jesus. Lord, you said if we behold you, we could become more like you. And so today, as we peel back the Old Testament, would we see Jesus so that we could become more like Jesus? Would you transform the way we think and thereby the way we live as we go to your word today? We believe that you can do it and we trust you in these next few moments to transform everything on the inside so that we can be different on the outside. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, like I said, Melchizedek is, is a bit of a mysterious guy in the Old Testament. And the mystery surrounding his life has become the subject of a lot of debate in the body of Christ over the centuries. Uh, debate that is mostly centered around his divinity. Some people believe that Melchizedek was a literal guy, a literal priest, a literal king from a literal place during the time of Abraham. Others, however, believe, and some theologians would attest to this, that he was what would be known as a Christophany. Now, for anyone who is unfamiliar with that term, a Christophany is essentially a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ before he shows up in the New Testament. He shows up before he shows up. And we don't have time to dive into all of that today. It'd be a really long rabbit hole and we'd take our whole time together. Um, but essentially when you see phrases like the angel of the Lord or the captain of the Lord's army, many theologians believe that this is not just an angelic being, but it is in fact an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And Mel falls into that category. I'm gonna call him Mel occasionally today, just shorten his name a little bit. It's really long to say Melchizedek. It burns up too much time. So Mel as if that didn't just burn up a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people believe that Mel is one of those guys. When he shows up, he is a picture uh, of Christ. Now, I'm not gonna resolve that debate today. As I often joke, chances are the pastor with the stunning ankles on the west side of San Francisco is not gonna resolve centuries-long debates. Uh, I, I don't know. People who are smarter than I and were around way before I was have been arguing about this for a long time. So I can't answer whether or not he was or he was not Christ. However, that's irrelevant for the sake of our conversation today because whether he was a literal Jesus or a figurative Jesus, everybody agrees he points to Christ. And that's what we're talking about today. So his story starts in the book of Genesis 14, and the setting is, is that Abraham has just returned uh, bringing Lot, who was kidnapped during a siege on Sodom, um, along with a number of other women and, and families and a bunch of plunder. And Abraham sends his army of 300 to go back and, and get all that's been lost and recovers it and brings it back. And as Abraham shows up home, he meets this guy Melchizedek in the Valley of the Kings. So we read in Genesis 14, 17, after Abram returned from his victory over 
a word, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Mel, the king of Salem, and the priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram be by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now that's it. That, that is the entire story of Mel in the Bible. Three measly verses. And, and yet, within those three verses, there is such a rich collection of prophetic symbolism. Some obvious and some that we kind of have to dig beneath the surface a little bit to find. For starters, his name, Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness or one who rules righteously. And we are told that this righteous king, he rules over a place called Salem. Now, Salem in the Hebrew is a word that means peace. So you have a righteous king that rules in peace. It sure does sound a lot like a scripture we read during this time of year, Isaiah chapter nine, where we're told, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his government and its rule there will be no end, for he will rule with righteousness, like his ancestor, David, the dude we talked about last week. So you can already begin to see peace, righteousness, we're drawing some connections to Christ. But, but those connections continue. Not only is he called a righteous king who rules in peace, but we're also told that he is a high priest, meaning that he is one who would make sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And speaking of sacrifices, we know that this Shaveh, King's Valley, would later be called the Kidron Valley, which was the very place where the blood from the temple sacrifices would flow to the valley below. The same valley that Jesus would cross over as he came on the night he was betrayed from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives before he was handed over to be crucified. And speaking of sacrifices, it kind of makes sense that Melchizedek gives Abram what he gives him some bread and some wine in this bloody valley. Consequently, the same elements that Jesus gives to his disciples on that same night where he says, this bread represents my body, which is gonna be sacrificed to you, and this wine represents my blood, which is going to be spilled for you so that you can be made right with God. Finally, in response to encountering Melchizedek and receiving a blessing, we are told that Abram gives a tenth, a tithe of all of his resources to this high priest who didn't ask for it, but simply received it because Abram recognized this guy just blessed me. So you put it all together, you got a righteous king that rules in peace, administering communion in blood valley and inspiring generosity. It sure does sound a whole lot like Jesus if you ask me. There you are, Jesus, right there in the text, right? A lot of connections in just three verses. Now, that's really cool, and it probably inspires us to slow down as we read our Bibles and think a little bit more and not just rush through the Bible reading plan for the day because there's a lot buried in the text of scriptures. But, but it doesn't really have much personal application. Like, okay, that's cool. Let's see what Mel has to do with Jesus. But what does it have to do with me? Well, for that, we need to migrate out of the Old Testament 
and make our way into the New Testament where we actually read a little bit more about this priest and king. Uh, If you go to the book of Hebrews, although Mel only gets three verses in the Old Testament, it gets three whole chapters in this New Testament book. And the author seems to be obsessed with making these connections between Jesus and Melchizedek. And and today what I'd like to do in our remaining moments is I want to draw three personal connections that we can find in the book of Hebrews, which feels redemptive for me. Because if you were here last week, you know that I only got two points in that sermon. And as I said, what hack poser preacher only gives two points? Everybody knows that three is God's holy number of sermon points. So you get three today, all right, for all the note takers. Uh, The first one is kind of like a physical. It's short and uncomfortable, but it's necessary for your health, all right? So the first one is this. If Melchizedek points to Christ, we, we find that ultimately Jesus is the one who receives our tithe. Jesus is the recipient of our tithe. Now, don't worry, this whole sermon is not about money. It has to be a little bit about money, though, based on what we we read in the text here. Look look at what we're told in Hebrews 7, verse 3. There is no record of his father, this is Melchizedek, or mother, or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. Melchizedek remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider, then, how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham... The great patriarch of Israel recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Mel placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received a blessing. He already had the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. Now, that's kind of confusing language. You're like, uh, 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 okay. And there's like five sermons packed into there. But I promised brevity, so let me keep this simple. When I look at this text, here's what he says. He says, consider how great this Melchizedek must have been if before the law was even established... Before God ever told people that they should give a tenth of their resources back to him, before there were any rules in place, Abram, out of, out of this encounter, was compelled to give a tenth of his resources to this high priest. This wasn't because God demanded it. It wasn't because Mel said, hey, God said you should give to me, which is typically the pastor's line. <laughs> no, it's, I've been blessed, and I've encountered this man, and I have to give. Now, now that tells me two things. Number one, as the point would suggest, it tells me that when we give, we are not giving to a church or to an organization. We're not giving to get a tax benefit. We might be giving to a 501c3, but we're really giving to the king that is above all kings. We're giving to Jesus. So so when somebody stands up here, as we do every single week, and they start to talk about money, we need to resist the temptation to roll our eyes and go like, ah, this feels uncomfortable, I don't want it. They're not asking you to give to a church. This isn't like, I'm compelling you to give to a vision. Let me twist your arm. This is not about an organization. This is not about a church. It's not about a vision. It's not about a pastor. This is about us giving back to Jesus. That's what it is. Furthermore, if... Abraham gave before the law was even established, before we even read anywhere in the scriptures that God asks this of us, then it tells me our giving is not some mindless act of obedience. 
It's not like, okay, I have to do this and I'm going to do it. That's not it. It's a heart issue. It's a response to recognizing that God has already blessed me. And as a result of that blessing, I am happy to bless him in return. I, I always kind of like get uncomfortable, roll my eyes at people who, who are like, oh, I don't, I, church shouldn't talk about money or, you know, I don't, they, they tell me I don't tithe, I don't give because, you know, that's an Old Testament thing. That's the law. But, you know, we live under Jesus and Jesus makes us greedy, I guess. I don't know. But, but. You know, that's, I don't live under the law, I live, I live under grace. And I just roll my eyes because I think to myself, you're just proving you don't know the Bible, my friend. You're proving that you have not developed your theology because you have searched the scriptures for truth. You probably got it from some broken rent-a-prophet online who just aligns with the greediness of your heart because at the end of the day, scripture's really clear on this one. Abraham gave before the law ever told him to give. This was not because it was an act of obedience. It was an outflow of his heart saying, you have blessed me. And in response to that blessing, I desire to give back to God. That's the heart. This is why every time we get a chance to give in our house, every time we tithe, I stop for a moment and bless you. And I thank God for the blessing. Bless you again. I thank God for the blessing. I take a moment and I say, God, thank you for providing for us. Thank you that you didn't have to give to me, but you chose to give to me. And God, we've been in situations where things look tight, but we've never needed. You've always provided. Even if it was at the last moment, you always came through. Thank you for blessing us so that we can be a blessing. It is my honor to return to you what you first gave to me. Why? Because I recognize I'm not giving to the Father's house. I'm not giving to an outreach organization. I'm giving to Jesus. He is the recipient of our tithe. All right, moving on. Number two, if... Melchizedek points us to Christ, then we can also tell from this text, based on this priesthood that has been established, that Jesus is not just a priest, but he is our personal priest. Uh, Look at what it says in verse 23. It says, there were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. He's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy, blameless, and unstained by sin. He's been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other guys, he did not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sin. So so though the high priests had a lot of responsibilities, the author here whittles them down to two. And actually, if you guys could get my, my, my prop here ready. He whittles them down to two. He says it was the jo- job of the high priest to intercede or pray for the people and to offer sacrifices for the people. Now, those two statements become incredibly powerful and incredibly revealing when we recognize how they point us to Christ. The only way we can see that is if we understand what the roles and responsibilities of the priest were as they prayed and as they offered up sacrifices. Now, this uh, practice of praying and sacrifice, it involved a couple things. It involved two goats. It involved the Ark of the Covenant. See Indiana Jones for reference. And it (laughs) it involved a curtain that separated a room in the temple from the rest of society. So, So scripture tells us that In the temple, there was a room called the Holy 
of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies stood the Ark of the Covenant, on which was the mercy seat, which was the very place of the manifest presence of God. It was the place where God dwelt on earth among humanity. And only one person, one day a year, on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was allowed to enter into that holy place. It was the high priest. And there was a very prescriptive method whereby the priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. On the outer courts, or outside of the inner sanctum there, he sacrificed one of those two goats. And after sacrificing that goat, he would very timidly take some of the blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle that blood. I was gonna use real blood for this, but I just thought that'd be really weird. My props have to have a limit, you know? And he would sprinkle that blood onto the Ark of the Covenant, right there on the mercy seat. And that blood being poured out on the altar was a sign that forgiveness was being offered to the people. The penalty for their sins was being paid for by blood. And after the priest had sprinkled the blood there on the ark, he would walk back out of the Holy of Holies. He would find that other goat, known as the scapegoat. He would lay his hands on that goat, and he would transfer the sins of the entire nation onto this poor, helpless little animal. <laughs> Here, have an entire nation's worth of sins. And then they would send this little demonized goat out into the wilderness to just wander away from the community. That is not a goat you want to run into in the desert, right? That, that, you know. <laughs> so, so the goat would walk away. And again, it was symbolic in nature that the sins of the nation were being carried away by the sacrificial animal. So they were forgiven because of the blood and the sins were being washed away because of the scapegoat. And this is how the high priest made the people right with God. How, how many glad that you live on this side of the cross? Church used to be a very weird and very bloody place back in the day, all right? Thank you, we live in this dispensation. Now, the, the scriptures tell us that Melchizedek was not like these other priests. In fact, he was before any of this prescriptive method was was written out for the priests to follow. But we're told in Hebrews that the other guys, the priests that came after him in the tribe of Levi, there was a record of their birth, there's a record of their death. They were born, they served in the temple, and then they died. But for Mel, we have no record of his birth. We have no record of his death, hence the reasons many believe he was Christ. He just shows up on the scene and then disappears. And the author of Hebrews tells us this, this arrival and then disappearance is actually evidence of something. He says, because we have no record of his birth or his death, he stands as an example of a priest forever who resembles Christ. Meaning that what was true of the priest is now true of Christ. In the same way that the high priest would come and offer up a sacrifice for the people, the spilling of blood of an animal so that the people could be made right with God, so Christ offered himself up on an altar called a cross and he spilled his blood so that all humanity could be made right with him. But it was not an act he had to repeat over and over and over again like that goat. Scripture tells us it was once for all time because the sacrifice was perfect 
perfect in nature, and he does not need to offer himself up again. The writer of Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 10 that the blood of Christ accomplished what bulls and goats could not accomplish for that continual sacrifice served to only add a guilty conscience because it served as a reminder of their sin. But Jesus erases the memory of sin because he gave his life once for all time so that our sin and our sickness and our depression and our failures and our regrets and our shame and everything the enemy tries to weaponize against us could be taken care of in one moment at the top of a hill when he gave his life as a sacrifice. But that's not it. Wait, there's more. He says, not only is he like the priest because he offers the sacrifices for you, but in the same way the priest interceded for the people, so Christ prays for you. He says, right now Jesus sits in his resurrected form, the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for the church. By name, he prays for you. Could you just wrap your head around that reality for a moment? As you sit in this room right now, as you go throughout your day, as you face challenges, Jesus is praying for you. He, he stands as a, as a watchman over your life, interceding on your behalf. And I don't know what he's praying but, but I think we get a, a little bit of a, a picture into it in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is sitting down with his disciples before he's about to be crucified and it's the last supper. And at some point in the meal, the, the attention turns to Peter and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has tried to sift you from my grip. He's tried to take you out as one of my disciples, but I have pleaded for you in prayer. And then he tells him exactly what he's been praying for him. He says, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. You want to know how Jesus is praying for you right now? He's praying that your faith would not fail. That regardless of the circumstance you're walking through, whether it's diagnosis or it's death or it's the midst of lack, whatever you're facing, that your faith would remain steadfast in every season and that you would serve your king all the days of your life. That's how Jesus is praying for you. I love this, this quote from the Scottish minister, uh, Robert Murray. He says, if, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference because he is praying for me. Ailas, he is praying for me. It sounded more like a pirate than it is a Scotsman, but that's okay, it's fine. Yeah, he's your personal priest. Not just some guy that represents humanity, but for you, he prays for you. He offered himself up for you. But, but the last benefit I think we see here in Hebrews, in my opinion, is, is the most significant. It's the most relevant, at least for me, on a regular basis, and perhaps you'll find the same. Because if Jesus is our personal priest in the order of Melchizedek, then what we find in this text is that ultimately, number three, it is Jesus who leads us through the curtain. Jesus who takes us into the presence. Look at what it says in Hebrews 6. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary 
Jesus already went in there for us, and he has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But back to this room for just a moment. Only one guy, one day a year, was able to access the presence of God. Only one guy could come into this holy place and experience what was available in the presence of the Almighty God. But for everybody else, all of, of the common folk, the plebeians out there, there was no hope of ever getting that close to God. At best, we could stand at a distance, hoping to benefit by proximity, but there was no way any other human had the right to go through the curtain. The curtain served to remind humanity that this is a restricted area. Uh, many of you know, um, for the last couple of years, we've had a, a cool opportunity uh, to do something called Fellowship Night with uh, the Warriors. And um, uh, once a year, they do a, a game where after the game, they invite a church to come on to the basketball court and lead worship, turn Chase Arena into a house of worship. And then one of the players comes out and shares their testimony, uh, preferably someone who's saved and actually has a testimony. Uh, <laughs> But uh, for the last couple of years, we've had the privilege of being the worship team that they asked to lead worship. And uh, I've even gotten to interview one of the players and hear about their story. It's been really, really cool. And I remember the first year they asked us to do this, uh, I was pumped because they told us in the kind of introduction that before the game, we were going to have an opportunity to go into the tunnel where the players run out from onto the court and load our instruments. And then uh, at the end of the game, during the fourth quarter, we were going to get to go in there and wait to walk out onto the court. So we show up on the day uh, to load our instruments in a few hours before the game and we go through security and one of the staff members begins to walk us back through behind the scenes to get to the tunnel. And I had all these images going through my head of like what we were gonna see when we went there. Like, like we're gonna get to see into the locker room and maybe we're gonna see players, you know, stretching and stuff and maybe the coaches are gonna be back there giving them a speech and, you know, maybe Steph will come up to me and he'll be like, Tim? I've been looking for a best friend and a pastor and what are you and Robin doing after the game? Aisha's cooking, come on over to the house and give each other a hug and he'd whisper in my ear, and I want to tithe. And I'm like, yeah. All these images. <laughs> but that is not at all what I experienced. We turn the corner coming out of the locker areas for all the staff members and we walk into the tunnel and instead of seeing anything, all we see is a hallway of curtains. Just a number of veiled rooms hidden by black curtains and in no uncertain terms, we were told by the staff member, do not peel back those curtains. Do not look at what's happening behind those curtains. You guys can set your stuff up here, and then you just stand here and you wait until you get out on the court. Now, I don't do well with directions like that. So <laughs> I broke the rules. And of course, at some point, I, I went and peeked behind one of the curtains. Uh, unfortunately, I did not see NBA players stretching on their way out to the court. I saw a group called the Hardwood Classics stretching, which is a group of senior citizens who occasionally replaced the Warriors dancers out there on the court. So needless to say, I was scarred and I regretted my decision immediately, all right? <laughs> it was a bit awkward. I'm like, okay, all right. 
What, what I desired and what I experienced were two completely different things. I was hoping for this all access pass, but instead I was met with barriers, curtains, walls that kept us out. And I wonder if there aren't a lot of Christians that would describe their journey of faith in similar terms. That would say, what I have desired and what I have experienced are two vastly different things. As we sang earlier, I had hoped and desired for the joy that's in the presence of the Lord, for the peace that I was told is available. I longed for fulfillment and purpose with my life. And, and, and above all, I had hoped that the feelings of shame and, and regret were gonna be gone once and for all and I could walk in freedom. But, but I've not experienced those things. It feels like instead, every time I try to come close to God, I just run into these walls. I run into these curtains, these things that seem to barricade his presence from me. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't pray enough. I sin too much. I cuss a little or a lot. And we have all these reasons why we feel like we can't get close to God. And so we settle for this Old Testament style of faith where we stay at this proximity, but it's still at a bit of a distance. I'm in church, but I feel far from God. I sing the songs, but I don't feel what I'm singing. And I'll just stand here while the holy people go through and they can access God. But as for me, I'll just, I'll stand off in the outer courts. But if that describes in any way, shape or form the kind of faith you have right now, I pray that this scripture in Hebrews would remind you this morning that that is not God's heart for you. Jesus did not give what he gave so that you could live in the outer courts at a distance from his presence, not experiencing all the stuff he paid the price for already. No, it says we have a hope that brings us through the veil. A hope that eclipses every lie, including your own voice that tells you that you don't belong in the presence of God. And a hope that doesn't just invite you through, but a hope that tore the very curtain that separated humanity from God once and for all so that you could enter into the presence of the Almighty. A hope in a high priest named Jesus who declared it is finished on the cross. And when he did, that 60 foot tall curtain that was six inches thick was torn from top to bottom because it wasn't by a man's hand. It was by the hand of God declaring all humanity now has access to the presence. You can come freely into the presence of God. No longer do you got to stay at a distance. I long for you and I've made a way for you to come close to me. He didn't just invite us to come freely. He took it a step further. He said, I command you to come boldly into the presence. Look at this last scripture and, and the band can come as we prepare to close. But it says this earlier in Hebrews chapter four. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, this son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Well, what do we believe? Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God 
There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Let us come boldly, not timidly, not fearfully, not expecting judgment. David and I were joking, joking earlier in the, in the kids' room talking about what the high priest would have to wear as they went into the presence of God. They literally wore bells on their garments so that if they fell over and died in the presence of God, everybody on the outside knew and they could drag them out by some ropes that were tied around them. Think about that. That's how they had to approach the presence of God. Not anymore. He says, come boldly before the throne of your gracious God where you can find mercy when you need it most. Let me ask, when do you need mercy most? Not when you're crushing it. Not when you're 50 days into a reading streak in your Bible reading plan and when you pray, it feels like angels are coming through the room and you're getting wing burns on your face and I fasted last Wednesday and I memorized all the lyrics to the most recent elevations. I, no, you don't need mercy then. You need mercy when you fail. You need mercy when you fall flat on your face. You need mercy when you do the thing that you told God you would never do again. That's when you need mercy. And it is there in the face of failure, in the face of sin, in the face of a face plant where he says, I want you to get up and I want you to come boldly to the throne of your gracious God like you know you belong there. Like you know it was never your righteousness in the first place that made a way for you to come, but it was the precious spilled blood of a perfect savior that tore the curtain and made a way for you to come into the presence of God. So you show up like you belong there. Well, what if I, it doesn't matter what you did. If you need mercy, this is where you belong. On this side of the curtain. Because the curtain doesn't even exist anymore. Let me just say today, if, if, if you are in need of mercy, if you are in need of grace, man, don't let the lies of the enemy, even your own voice keep you on the outer courts. Come boldly, come boldly. By definition of the word, mercy is reserved for times of failure. It's in that moment where your faith is proven. Do I believe that it is my righteousness that makes me right with God? Or do I believe that a veil has been torn so that I can come boldly into the presence of the Almighty King? Don't stay at a distance today. If you're far, come close, because He's already made a way for you to do it, amen? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.